foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I'm Danica of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP 107.9 FM. We're also on Spotify. And Apple Podcasts, you can check out our website at www.codepink.org forward slash radio, where you can find all of our episodes from episode one to our most recent. I have very, very special guests here today. I'm very excited to have on. We have Lauren from the Code Pink Youth Peace Collective. We have Rose and Michelle from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Thank you all so much for being on the show. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. So I'm having these three young organizers on the radio show today to talk about their most recent trip to Cuba. Um, The three of them went and a a few more handfuls of people of young organizers from the U.S. went on a brigade to Cuba um, sort of over the week of Thanksgiving Um, so can Lauren, would you be able to tell me sort of the purpose of this brigade, like why you went, uh, the time you did that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Danica. Of course. Um, so the timeline of this brigade was from the 23rd of November, um, until the 28th, uh, we flew back the morning and afternoon of the 28th. Um, the explicit purpose of this brigade Um, hosted by the International People's Assembly um, was to unite youth organizers or working class youth organizers from the U.S. with uh, youth organizers in Cuba. Um, And there has been kind of an established tradition of brigades between the U.S. and Cuba since obviously right after the revolution. And so they've always served like a really important purpose um, considering that the U.S. is like it is embargo over Cuba um, and is really important to for like us as like working class uh, youth organizers to show like our solidarity with the Cuban people. Um, so in this case, it was um, unique in that it united youth from the US with youth from Cuba. Um, and so we got to see like a lot of that on our trip. That's really awesome. I'm interested because I was able to go on a brigade to Cuba for May Day and I went with a lot of comrades from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. So either Rose or Michelle or um, 
both of you sort of what was sort of the importance um, of going on this brigade for um, PSL members like yourselves? Uh, yeah, I can go. Uh, so I think one of the main um, important aspects of having PSL members and other organizers from the U.S. to go on this brigade to really see for themselves what the socialist project in Cuba looks like. Um, you know, we tend to read about it a lot in articles and books, but just seeing it in person is definitely a, a different experience. Um, and I think it really solidified why their project must be supported in every way, especially from the United States, because the United States does have a crippling blockade against Cuba. And so I think for us to really get to see what they can achieve, even under this, you know, decades long blockade um, is pretty inspiring. And it really gives us like a sense of hope of like what we can achieve in, you know, the belly of the beast, the United States. Thank you. Rose, did you want to add anything or? Um, I think similar to what Michelle was saying, just it's really important to see it from our own eyes because we get so much propaganda against Cuba that there, it's kind of like this mysterious place where we don't really know what's going on and a lot of mainstream media doesn't depict the truth about it. So the fact that we got to see it for our own eyes and then communicate it back to people in the States, I think is really important to share what they've been doing under the brigade and just to have some actual truth about the country instead of lies that we often get from U.S. media. Thank you. Um, yeah, so Michelle, you you brought up the blockade and that is sort of, you know, why Code Pink does um, trips and um, trips to Cuba with people. Um, is because like you can actually see firsthand like how the blockade impacts everyday life in Cuba. Um, and then you could go home, share the stories with people who, you know, in the US we do have um, sort of the power to change the blockade and lift it and advocate for lifting it and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm interested to hear, you know, I think all three of you can kind of have your own answers to this question, but how did you see the blockade like affecting life in Cuba? I guess um, I'll start with Lauren and then Rose and then Michelle. Yeah, thanks, Danica. Um, I'd love to start this answer um, with our visit to a biomedical research center um, called the Center of Molecular Immunology, where they do immunological research and is also the place where they've invented like the lung cancer, like uh, the lung cancer vaccine pill, which works for um, certain patients uh, in, uh, who have lung cancer with like a certain um, protein. But they've been at the forefront of a lot of really amazing medicines. And we got to hear from some of the researchers at that center um, talk about how the embargo impacted their work. Um, and what really stood out to me was hearing one of these researchers talk about how the embargo inhibited their access to uh, the best technological equipment. Um, one of them specifically referenced a gene sequencing machine that uh, they had bought from a third party from a country outside the US, even though it was manufactured in the US. 
Um, and it was a very expensive machine. And as with most technologically complex machines, they need to be fixed. Um, they need repairs. And um, oftentimes the people at these centers aren't in a position where they can make these repairs themselves. And so you send them back to the manufacturing company for repairs. But in this case, the researchers couldn't do that because of the embargo and because they had purchased it um, from a third party. So whenever they needed these gene sequencing machines repaired, they just have to buy an entirely new one, which is ridiculously prohibitively expensive and inhibited a lot of their own research. Um, so that was really interesting to hear about. Um, we also heard about how they can't really pay to get their work published in journals in the US. Um, and also after the Trump administration passed a piece of legislation that made it so that um, people traveling to Cuba from the EU had to had their passports marked in a way where they had to acquire a visa if they visited US, the US in the six months after that. Um, we heard about how that affected the number of academics and researchers and intellectuals who opted to participate in conferences held in Cuba. Um, they had less participation in these conferences. And so we kind of saw in a number of ways how this embargo impacted uh, the academic, the medical sector, and how it really stimmied um, or hindered the ability for them to, again, create a lot of these new innovations, um, these medical innovations they've been doing. Thank you, Lauren. Um, that's a really good and interesting example. I think a lot of people probably don't think of when they think of the blockade um uh rose or michelle do you want to go next um i can go i think just hearing the cuban people talk about how the embargo and the blockade is basically the number one impede like in, it's the number one thing that impedes the country from thriving in many different ways um and yet they still have been able to accomplish so much but as lauren was saying it has huge medical um, it stops the ability to share medicine from the U.S. point perspective as well. They have all these really impressive vaccines that the U.S. will not even acknowledge because we kind of have this, we're taking, we're, um, we are prioritizing political views instead of trying to save lives, which the solidarity between Cuba and the U.S. could do. And I think just it is um, depriving Cuba of a lot of basic goods and resources, like it's hard to access medicine, over-the-counter medicine and food and just things that we take advantage for in the U.S. Um, it is hard for them to access those things because it's not only sanctions from the U.S., but then if any other countries want to do business with Cuba, then the U.S. also makes it very difficult and it's hard for a small island to compete against the richest country in the world. So it's a very unfair balance. Um, so yeah, I think there's just a lot of goods and medical research. There's like, there's a kind of a blockade on the knowledge that we could be sharing and also a blockade on the material things that people need to live. Thank you, Rose. That's that's really important to highlight. And also just like, we are, we are hindering like Cuba's ability to get medicine and also like how, 
how hostile foreign policy also affects like working class Americans who, you know, could have access to this lung cancer pill, but instead they don't because we insist on um, blockading a, you know, <laughs> um, a small island 90 miles off the coast of Florida um, for whatever reason. Um, and we can get into the reasons also. Um, but Michelle, would you like to talk about how you kind of saw the blockade affect everyday life in Cuba? Yeah, so I just want to reiterate Lauren's and Rose's points about like how the blockade has impacted um, Cuban people. But I actually want to talk a little bit more about how the blockade is impacting Americans and like the working class here, because the Cuba uh, Cubans have created so many innovations despite this uh, blockade. And, you know, besides the, the pill that um, treats lung cancer, there's also like a lot of medicines that treat diabetes, which is one of the leading um, diseases in America. And the United States refuses to accept these treatments. The Cuba is literally saying like, here, we will give you this treatment um, because we understand that this is affecting a lot of working class families in the United States. But, you know, the United States will not benefit from receiving, you know, these medicines and by the United States, I'm talking about, you know, the ruling class because they know that they can't profit off of this. Um, so I just think that the blockade is not only impacting a certain, you know, group, it's impacting the world um, and it's impacting the United States. And I think that a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and it also impacts Cuba's ability to work with other countries. Other countries do want to work with Cuba. But like Lauren mentioned um, and, and Rose mentioned that if other countries decide to work with Cuba and cooperate with Cuba, the United States will go against them. Um, and I just want people to also understand that, you know, to Rose's point, Cuba is a very, very tiny island. Like, I think it's the, it has the same amount of people as like some cities here in the United States. And the fact that they can still provide so much for its people in other ways, like free healthcare, um, free education, you know, a right to a job, a right to a house is really incredible to see. Um, and I think that the United States has a lot to learn from that. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And Cuba has been, you know, despite the blockade has been you know, making attempts at showing solidarity with working class people in the U.S. time and time again. And like, the, I think the best and most, you know, sort of emotional example of that is after Hurricane Katrina, Cuba had regular, regularly and all the time sends its doctors all over the world, um, but tried to send doctors to the South during Hurricane Katrina um, to help the people affected by that natural disaster. And George Bush basically, you know, told them no and told them that they couldn't come um so um <clears throat> you know the embargo is depriving the u.s of like meaningful um opportunities at solidarity between cuba and you know people here in the u.s um so thank you for highlighting that michelle um and you know kind of to get into that like point of solidarity maybe before the break you all were able to go to the international medical school, right? So where a lot of people from outside the country um, were able to go to Cuba and get um, 
their uh, medical degrees. Can you sort of talk, uh, maybe one of you talk about um, <laughs> education in Cuba? Like, are these people going to school for free? Um, how does that sort of work? And what interesting conversations did you have at the medical school? Yeah, thank you, Danica. I can start us off. Um, I think the visit to their International School of Medicine or ELAM was the part of the trip that had to be my favorite. Um, I think it was our first trip of our brigade as a whole. Um, and it was amazing to me because it's such like an unprecedented like idea in the US or rather like an inconceivable idea in the US um, because the because Elon like takes students in like internationally, globally, takes them in and educates them or trains them formally in medicine for free. Um, and not even for like the benefit of their own nation. Like I feel like the integration of service and like help and community is so important because as you mentioned, um, even though the US is, is hesitant to accept this help or has refused it in the past, uh, Cuba has been able to help so many other uh, like countries and populations in crisis um, because of their medical system, uh, because of the their ability to create and educate so many doctors and then be willing to send them out to um, help out. Um, so that really stood out to me. Um, it was also really interesting seeing where internationally all of these students were from. Um, there were a lot of actually Palestinian uh, doctor, doctoral students or like students of medicine that we had conversations with and all of them, it was interesting, like having political discussions in particular and seeing how they um, unified or like created a link between their cause um, and their project um, and the liberation of Palestine to the project here in Cuba. Um, so those conversations and those interactions really stood out to me, um, especially as somebody from the U.S. For me, um, the Elam school was also one of my favorite experiences. It was so beautiful to see this medical school, but so rich with life and culture as well. Like we were hearing these extremely profound presentations and then everyone would break out into dance. And I just thought it kind of embodied Cuba as like the revolutionary spirit paired with like a very vibrant culture. And to Lauren's point, I thought it was amazing. Um, they have a lot of Palestinian students. I think they have like 500 students from Palestine and someone there from Breakthrough News interviewed a Palestinian student and he described how doctors are very needed in Palestine and he wanted to study in Cuba because first of all it's free and because Cuba is it's there for its own people but it also wants to be in solidarity with the rest of the world and particularly with countries that are struggling under um, like imperialist forces so this man from Palestine was explaining how doctors are heroes where he lives because people are getting killed every day and doctors are so important and are really the saviors of the world. And he didn't, he said he didn't know how much time he would be in Palestine and how much, how long he could be a doctor, but it was worth it to be there for his people. And I think that kind of talks like is representative of the morals and values of Cuba and Palestine and all these countries in the world who are really 
want to be there for the people and for the most vulnerable communities and that has shown that it is genuine people are becoming doctors to be genuinely supportive of their community members and it's not really for profit it's for to help the world yeah i think uh for me one of the really impressive features of this medicine school was kind of how it was established. So, you know, in the late 90s, there was this huge uh, hurricane disaster that hit Central America and the Caribbean. And I think that Castro, Fidel Castro, he was just, you know, ready, you know, to help in the situation. And, and I think that his idea, this project that came to be Elam, um, just really speaks volumes to what Cuba is trying to establish, what they have been trying to establish. Um, you know, so after the disaster hit, you know, this really um, oppressed part of the of Latin America, you know, Fidel Castro said, we need to build a medical school, you know, soon. So that way we can have youth from these countries come to the school train them formally and then you know hopefully send them back home so that way they can treat their own people um and i think that that just says a lot right of what um the cuban community is trying to achieve here not just in their own country but internationally as well especially in countries like in latin america where we know um imperialism uh is definitely you know impacting these these countries um, the most. Um, and yeah, and I think that seeing a lot of young doctors was also another amazing thing to see. I, I you know, there were so many young people, uh, young students at the school that um, I feel like it's not something that we typically think of or we typically see. Uh, it always seems like it's the same kind of people going into medical school, but here you see like a huge, like diverse population of young people from around the world um, that want to be doctors simply because they want to help people uh, and not because they know that they are going to make like a lot of money from, you know, this career choice. Yeah, that's super important to like it just, it was so jarring for me to kind of be there and see the difference in like, not just the way Cuban healthcare is like run, but how it's viewed. Like, it's just a radically different mindset people have about um, health in general, but also like what purpose it serves. Um, like not having to think about insurance prices is um, you know, sort of just like, it seems like a different planet to me sometimes, um, because of, you know, growing up here in the U.S. and having so many issues with our healthcare system. So thank you all for kind of highlighting the difference between like how people kind of think about, um, healthcare, uh, and even just like becoming doctors in the first place. Um, we're going to take a little break, but we'll come back and we'll talk about, um, you know, you were there for, um, a trip to like connect with Cuban youth. Um, so I do want to talk about that and like your conversations you had with people there. Um, so we'll take a quick break. Um, 
thank you so much to all of you for listening and thank you to everyone who's tuning in right now you're listening to code pink radio coming to you through pacifica radios wpfw in washington dc wbai new york city kpft in houston kpfk 90.0 fm los angeles we'll be back after this break with our same guests to talk more about their trip to cuba Sanare, o provocar heridas, salvar, o arrebatar las vidas, ganar, por ser el que más cuido, matar. Ser el campeón homicida, el que está torcida la escala de valores, villanos con laureles y loores. Cuando se condecore de manera más justa, el que extrae la bala y no ese que le incrusta, dará la humanidad con lo que busca, dará la humanidad con lo que nunca. Le dio la sed de sangre, el resultado está a la vista. El premio es una tumba, la carrera armamentista retumba. No hay oído que se esconda, inunda. La superficie redonda, fecunda la palabra. Hora de que se imponga, médicos y no bombas. ¿Cuál será el mérito? Cuando esto empiece a crujir y tengas que elegir cuál es el Welcome back. I'm Danica with Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. I'm back uh, with Lauren from Code Pink's Peace Collective and Rose and Michelle from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. We're talking about their most recent Youth Brigade to Cuba they came back, uh, I think, like about a week ago, ish, like kind of, right? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. so we just we just finished talking about the School of International Medicine, um, but Lauren had one thing to add, so I want to pass it over to her, and then we're gonna kind of talk about, you know, the reason for their trip, you know, youth in Cuba and interacting between working class youth in the U.S. and uh, youth in Cuba. So, Lauren, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Danica. Just something else I wanted to add and didn't want to understate um, was. Also, like the purpose of having this free school of medicine um, open internationally was also to have and to create doctors with practices and dispositions that were informed by their own community and culture. Um, And I think acknowledging that is also really important when we grapple with the issue of like medical racism in the US, um, how we don't really have as many doctors um, who are representative um, of their community and culture and race when we especially think about um, medical racism and the impact of it on black women and like black mothers um, who are giving birth and like their own mortality rates. Um, so I think it's also really important to consider um, how opening up their school of medicine to people internationally and having it open also for free impacts then the work of these doctors in their respective um, communities and within their respective cultures. Thanks, Lauren, uh, for highlighting that and taking time to do that. Um, So the purpose of the trip was to kind of connect 
working class youth in the U.S. with youth in Cuba. So I want to talk to you all about the like conversations you had with young people in Cuba. You know, if there's one that stuck out to you or if you want to talk about, you know, sort of how young Cubans view uh, Cuban politics and society. Um, I don't know, maybe Michelle or Rose can start and then we could pivot back to Lauren. Okay. Um, for me, it was the youth were extremely impressive. And I think just talking to them, having kind of casual conversations, but then like the, realizing they know so much and they're taught like so thoroughly about the history of their own country and the history of other countries. And they're taught from a completely different lens than we're taught. Like they can be taught from a socialist lens, but also learn about U.S. capitalism and know so much where we are just kind of are in our education. They just kind of demonize Cuba and socialism. And so just how much more well-read they are and stuff because in like I mean in my experience in the public school high school system it's a very like rote nature of work where it becomes people start to like hate history or hate reading and there I was just inspired how kind of um, optimistic and educated everyone was and in the US, if you're part of a leftist movement, it often feels like you're fighting against a lot of other people or constantly trying to convince people just because of how much we have been brainwashed in our in our history and everything. Um, so there it felt inspiring to talk with young people who actually can conceptualize the idea of revolution. And the revolution was not just something that happened in 1959, but they emphasized that it's an ever-changing revolution and it's a process that is adapting to the current times. Um, so I think I just felt very inspired to come back to the US and like get active, read more and just, it felt good to be side by side with real humans and talk to them because especially during the times of pandemic, it can feel very isolating. And you don't, sometimes I don't feel the energy of like, let's make this change happen. But being there with people who are very much in it, that is their culture of, they like it's a revolutionary culture and I felt that they very much supported it um and so just being there and feeling that energy I was like I need to take this back home I want to talk about it with my peers and I want to get active and I realized how how urgent it is at least to lift the blockade because it is making their people people suffer unnecessarily Yeah, I could go next. Um, yes, I think the youth in Cuba is just, it, it's very impressive. Um, I think that Cuba does a really good job at training the youth to be exceptional leaders in whatever field they go into. I think a lot of the events that we went to were led by the youth. Um, you know, a lot of the organizers that we were hosted by, they were all really young. I think uh, one of the organizers, he was 17, uh, about to turn 18, and he already has so much responsibility. He has so many leadership roles. And I didn't know, it, it kind of felt like I was talking to someone my age, like closer to like, you know, late 20s. So I was really impressed by that. There's just also so much confidence in the youth, 
as well that I notice, you know, they know what they want to do. They know that they want to help their community. They know how to talk to people. They're so friendly. And, you know, I, I like Rose mentioned, it really inspired me to kind of go back home and come with that energy as well. I'm a middle school teacher. So uh, for me, like I, that's what I want, right? That's what, that's why I'm a teacher because I want to, you know, teach students how to become their own leaders of their community. I teach in South Central Los Angeles, which is, um, you know, it's its own experience in itself. It has a lot of revolutionary history. And that's something that I want my students to be more aware of, just like, you know, Cuban youth, they're so aware of their own revolutionary history. They know how to talk about it. They know how to share it. They know how to um, use that as like their inspiration to take action. And I want my students to also understand that because I think oftentimes in the United States, when we have, you know, these incidents, um, these moments of revolutionary optimism, of revolutionary action, it will get suppressed, um, you know, so viciously that it kind of makes the youth feel like powerless. But I think being in Cuba, it, it just shows like, you know, I think with collective effort and collective resistance, it, it's it's possible to, you know, really, really get what you want. Um, and I, I don't know, I just think that seeing the youth out there from all different ages was just incredible to see how they lead in every aspect of their life. You know, I'm, you know, in the elections, you saw like 10 year olds safeguarding the ballot boxes. Uh, I think when we went to the botanical gardens, we saw like these young girls that were like leading their Girl Scout, uh, you know, groups. And so just seeing it in their everyday life, I think that's why Cuban youth are just doing amazing things for their communities because they start so young that it's just kind of like this normal activity that they, that they do. Yeah. So I'll just end there. Yeah. Um, I can finish this up here. Um, and to add on to what everybody is saying, um, I think the youth in Cuba and like a lot of the members of UJC that we interacted with, um, which is their Youth Communist League, who also participated in the brigade. Um, something that was really interesting is they talked about the revolution, again, as this very dynamic thing, as kind of like a spot on a continuum. Um, and again, not as like an event that happened in the past, but uh, something that uh, they and like also we are constantly building upon. Um, and when I was talking to one of our Cuban comrades on the bus one day, he read off this uh, speech by Castro and it talks about what revolution means. And I also think it's really applicable in the US and just to take like a small excerpt from it because it's a longer speech. Um, Fidel said that revolution is the sense of the historical moment and it's challenging the dominant powerful forces within and outside of the social and national arena. Um, and it's also this conviction, this profound conviction that there's no force on earth that can crush truth and ideas. Um, and I think that's relevant, again, in, in our historical moment and also thinking about um, our place as um, residents of America, as residents of this empire 
and some of us as like taxpayers, as people who fund the embargo on Cuba indirectly. Um, and when I say that, I also want to draw this idea of like revolution within the US to like their own revolutionary project, because I think something that Michelle also mentioned, or perhaps it was Rose, was the idea of like having revolutionary optimism um, and seeing it still as like a viable project here in the US. And it, because it's so easy, I think, to fall to like learned helplessness or like the wave of uh, apathy and like sadness that like hits everybody here in the US, but we're in such like, I feel like a privileged and really powerful spot as people who live here in the empire and as so many movements, social movements, um, and like even labor movements are like popping up here in the US. And there are so many ways to link these movements um, to the greater like uh, capitalist and imperialist project we see um, amongst a lot of like the Western empires. Um, and so I think there are a lot of things we can do as working class uh, like residents of the US. Um, and I think that might be like a really important and interesting conversation we can have later um, about things maybe we've been thinking about doing since our trip, but just to consider that the revolution is an ongoing project, not only in Cuba, but also here in the States. Thank you, Lauren. Um, and thank you to Rose and Michelle. Um, I, you know, so something <laughs> I noticed in Cuba was like a, a fundamental difference in how the people's interests align with the government's interests. So, you know, in Cuba, it felt like the government had the people's interests in mind because, you know, they have things like universal health care, free education, um, you know, sort of like a housing guarantee and all that kind of stuff. And uh, right now, uh, this week here in the U.S., Congress is voting on the NDAA, which is the National Defense and Authorization Act, which is just a fancy uh, acronym for the Pentagon budget uh, or the defense budget, if that's what you want to call it. We can call it the war budget. Um, it's They're voting on $847 billion um, to give to the Pentagon. And I think it just shows like such a fundamental difference in like it really shows how like very few members of Congress, I think only like a handful last year voted no on the entire budget, like not nearly enough to sort of make waves. Um, so can you three kind of talk about like how you saw the interests um, aligning in Cuba versus how you see the ruling classes interests and in working class people here in the U.S.? And how do we get better at recognizing that those interests are diametrically opposed here in the belly of the beast? Because I think people don't really like have the language to like call it out all the time. But yeah, I could I could speak to this. Um, yeah, very different. You know, in Cuba, it's definitely a socialist project that is run by its own people. So you know, communities 
um, different neighborhoods, they are representing their own, you know, community coming in with like these ideas of like, we need this, we need that. Um, like there was that vote on, um, you know, the family code, which in itself is just remarkable of like what they can achieve for families, children, they, they know the importance of, of everyone, like everyone's contribution. And here in the United States, you kind of see like regression, like you see, like we're the attack on our own democratic rights and we're living in, you know, like it's 2022 and we still have to fight for, you know, the right for abortion. We still have to fight the right to vote. Um, and so it, it is really uh, interesting to see that there is like this huge uh, divide, like, you know, here in the United States, we have to fight for the most basic things that in Cuba, it's like a given. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I, I think it just really shows like why here in the United States, we do need a socialist movement. We need to show people like, look what these countries can achieve, right? Look what Cuba can achieve with just 11 million people, which is, you know, close to the size of, Los Angeles County, where I'm from, and here, and a lot of people say, "Oh, well, the United States is too big, right? It's too big to have uh, any kind of project like the uh, like Cuba can." But that's where they're wrong because the United States is so developed. Um, you know, it has so much modern technology where you know we can definitely achieve what they have, Cuba, and you know, being able to like work with them would be, you know, beautiful to see because we want people, like, I think we're all here because we believe that people deserve those basic rights. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Rose, do you want to add something? I'm sure, just like how you mentioned, Danica, how the Cuban people are more aligned with their government. And there is a quote from Asada Shakur, who was granted asylum in Cuba, a Black Panther Party member. And she said that Cuba was the only country or society that she felt was not at war with her with itself. It said, being in Cuba has allowed me to live in a society that is not at war with itself. There's a sense of community. It's a given in Cuba that if you fall down, the person next to you is going to help you get up. And I think this these values you really feel in the day-to-day -day life of that how people interact with one another is also representative of what the government is doing for its people. And we were even seeing that in the elections when we went to the voting poll is when people are elected, they are not given a whole bunch of money. There is not billions of dollars into campaigns. They are just community members like everyone else. And they are elected by the community because they are known for being a good person to represent their community and be for their people. So you can still be a sanitation worker, but also be the leader of your community. And I think that speaks to the morals of the whole country of that it's not to become like the, the top dog of the society for your individual benefit, but there's this underlying collective attitude that is we are working to provide for our society as it provides for us back. And I think, that it's hard in the US, it like it um 
it is a reason for our hopelessness in a way because in our system we have our two-party system that a lot of people feel okay the democratic party they're not going to do what we want either so there's no hope there's no way we can change this and the democratic party and the republican party ultimately are both being bought out by a whole bunch of corporations are feeding into the capitalist system so i think the Democrats may give us some empty promises, but the working class people say, well, they're not going to actually help us. They haven't helped us before. So seeing Cuba as a government, that it's possible for the government to actually be for its people is something that we need to believe for ourselves. Because as Michelle mentioned, like we have the resources to do this stuff. It just needs a change of thinking. And we need to get people on board to actually believe and fight for a system that benefits the working class people. Because in Cuba, as we see, it's possible. It's not some fake facade. We were able to see it with our own eyes and how the youth and people there they spoke to it. They said, yes, everything is free. And as you said, I was like, how is that possible? You go, you leave the hospital with no bill. It seems shocking. But to them, they were like, that's super normal. So I think it was just refreshing to see, like, this is a very feasible thing if if we could get the masses to change, to believe it, because people will be on board if they knew that they could get free healthcare, free education, um, those are things people want and are things that are ruining people's lives because we can't access these basic things. So, thanks. And that, yeah, thank you, Rose. And that's, you know, sort of why the blockade is really in place in the first place. It's so, uh, it's to stop the, it, they have not been successful in over 60 years of uh, trying to prove the revolution in Cuba um, unsuccessful. Um, in reality, like even under this immense economic pressure, Cuba has been able to provide for its people. Um, so what could it do without the blockade? That's what, you know, the ruling class in the U.S. doesn't want people here to know. Um, so, you know, you, Rose, you mentioned the elections, and I kind of want to talk about that before we wrap up. Like, kind of, Lauren, maybe can you describe what you saw in the elections? Like, when you walked in, what did you see? Um can you like paint a picture of it for people? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so when we visited one of the municipal election centers on Sunday, I think it's the 27th, um, what I noticed immediately was like how many people were coming in and out of the actual election centers. Um, I was really um, also surprised like hearing one of the uh women like working at these centers describing to us what the elections here or elections were like there in cuba and just hearing about the incredible voter turnout rate um hearing about how the candidates did no campaigning how they were nominated um and their pictures and descriptions were posted at the election site like um, going there also at the front of the building, there were three pieces of paper with their photos and descriptions um, of themselves, like, like printed and pasted in front for everybody to see. Um, and when you stepped inside, you saw the ballot box um, and you saw two 
younger kids um, standing at the ballot box and saluting as um, Cubans fill out their ballots and put them in there just to confirm that they put it in the ballot box. Um, so it was also like very quick and efficient, even though it was quite populated, um, which is very different from here in Chicago. When I went to vote um, a month or so ago, I was just standing outside of the uh, the library branch, I think, for an hour and a half to uh, cast my vote. Um, so, like, very efficient and streamlined. Um, yet, there is a very like large turnout that I that I noticed, um, and like a diversity of of, of turnout as well. Um, and Rose and Michelle, I'd love to see what else or hear about what you guys witnessed too. Yeah. So people people say that Cuba doesn't have elections, but it sounds like. You three got to watch one in real life. Um, yeah, I don't know if Rose and Michelle want to add anything about the elections. Yeah, I think uh, one of the uh, really cool things I've uh, seen is just like, you know, the, the elections isn't like the spectacle that we have here in the United States. Like I think in our midterm elections, the United States spent like, 17 billion dollars which is you know disgusting because imagine what that money could do for the actual working class and not just like advertisements campaigning donations all those things that um in cuban elections you don't see at all i think um also any community community members that are over the age of 16 automatically registered and added you know to this list um of like where they can you know vote there's no like complicated procedure of you know getting to vote like here in the united states i feel like it's very it's a complex system that really prevents people from even wanting to vote in the first place uh and i think that the ballots that we got to see uh in these elections are very simple very straightforward here, when we vote in the United States, like we have to really understand what we're voting for because the language can get, you know, very convoluted, confusing. You might be, it might sound like a good measure that you're voting for, but in the end, it'll have like some, you know, crazy ramifications that you weren't even aware of. And yeah, so I think Cuba uh, makes it very easy for people to like understand what they're voting for. And yeah, the fact that we got to see, you know, this specific polling location was really impressive. But like knowing that these polling locations exist all across the country is really important. You know, I've seen a lot of people coming in and out. And yeah, I think there's, yeah, and I, I just think being able to see this process where, you know, people wanting to show up and doing this, you know, quickly, you know, without a line or without this whole like, jarring process like here in the United States is like really really cool to see and you can see that it's not money driven you know we got to see like the people who were running and it was like a very simple you know document with like a picture of themselves a little bio and that's it nothing too like you know showy or flashy and I think one of the I think the youngest candidate that we saw on that list was like a 22 year old um, woman, she was a fourth year student in, you know, in psychology, she was involved in a lot of organizations, really impressive background and experience. And, you know, just to see that 
that's how young like people are getting involved in their own community and they actually want to represent it not because they know that they can get like this you know huge salary out of it is 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 really it was really amazing to see thank you um lauren did you want to add anything or you yeah i also wanted to talk more about um how like campaigning isn't a thing there and how like that's so huge because here in the states like you know economic capital has a way of translating into political capital um and i mean that's one of the many reasons why a lot of our um congress people and like people in the government as a whole are largely represented by the ruling class um and also kind of like to touch on our previous point we were talking about um how the differences between how the you know cuban citizens and their interests align with the cuban government and how like working class citizens like here in america how our interests don't align with like our government how that difference is so stark um like i feel like the incongruence between like the government and like working class interests here in the u.s is like totally not a coincidence and like so is our bloated defense budget that isn't really a coincidence either um you know it forces regime change and also really keeps like a lot of countries like in the global south like engaged in exploitative and asymmetrical economic relations and i mean here in the u.s that doesn't even like benefit a lot of the working class that much because like our our tax money funds the defense budget, but our tax money doesn't really fund like healthcare for everybody and education for everybody um, when it could. And like we see that happening um, in Cuba. Uh, thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. And thank you to our guests for talking about their most most recent trip to Cuba and their experiences. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we 